Expectations are a big part of our lives. Each day we wake up with expectations. We have tons of them. And we have expectations for how we uh, just expect things to be or how we expect things to, to go. And when things aren't as we expect, uh, that can throw us off. We might expect the map to be where it always is. And if it isn't where it is, you know, you kind of automatically go, you know, go to the fridge, open up, where's the milk? kind of throws you off if the milk isn't there or your cereal or whatever it is. It's like, where, where's the stuff? Is this supposed to be where it is? And we get confused or we expect our car to start. Uh, and if it doesn't, okay, now I'm very stressed. I'm going to be late for work. What am I going to do? You know, we have things that we just kind of expect them to be a certain way when you wake up in the morning. And we go into experiences with expectations, whether we voice them or not. Maybe you go to a movie uh, with expectations based on the movie trailer or based on what people said, and then you might walk out of it and say, well, that didn't live up to my expectations. Or maybe you say, well, it wasn't what I expected. It wasn't what I was expecting. Maybe it would surprise you. Maybe it pleasantly surprised you. And it's like, or maybe it's just a little bit different. Like, oh, I thought it was going to be like this, but it wasn't what I was expecting. And expectations are very real in our relationships. We have expectations in every relationship. Spouses have expectations for each other. Kids have expectations for their parents, and parents have expectations for their kids, and uh, bosses and have expectations for employees. Employees have expectations of their bosses, and friends have expectations for each other. And sometimes those expectations are made known, but sometimes we say, well, they have a lot of unspoken expectations. Like, you just, I feel like you're just expecting a lot from me, but you're not telling me what they are. Like, or maybe we say, you're expecting too much from me. Like, we feel like somebody's just wanting more than we can give. And it can drive us crazy when someone has expectations for us that they aren't telling us. And disappointment is, comes from unmet expectations. Whenever you're disappointed, it's like you had expectations for something and those things weren't met. And if we don't want to be disappointed, sometimes we say we lower our expectations. Well, you need to really lower your expectations here. Or like, well, I have really low expectations for this thing. Like maybe you're sitting through a work training or you're going to something you're like, well, I just have really low expectations for this. This isn't going to be very good. Or maybe you've just come in a relationship It's just like, you know, I've just been disappointed so many times. Like, I just try to have low expectations. And then I maybe am pleasantly surprised once in a while. And today, as we're returning to our series in Micah called uh, Micah, Who is a God Like You? Uh, we're going to learn about expectations. And Micah was a prophet, a spokesperson for God. And he lived in the 8th century B.C., 700 years before Jesus came. And he lived during the time uh, when the nation of Israel had this threat on the horizon. Uh, the Assyrian Empire um, was, uh, had taken out the northern kingdom of Israel. This was a time when the nation of Israel was split into two different kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom of Israel named Israel, and then the southern kingdom was called Judah. And Micah lived in the southern kingdom of Judah. And Micah lived through seeing the northern kingdom being taken out by the Assyrian Empire. And then he says, Judah, uh, southern kingdom, we're next if we don't change our ways. We've let our nation, our the southern kingdom, we've gone the same way that they've gone. We're chasing after idols. We're not worshiping God as we should. We've let the corruption that was uh, had infected the northern kingdom, that's all come down to us. And we're next if we don't start changing our ways. And Micah 3.8 gives us 
how he sees his job description. It says, But as for me, I'm filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. And so Micah keeps warning them, if you don't turn your, uh, from sin back to God, the Assyrian Empire is going to come and destroy us. And Micah's name means, who is like the Lord? And while he says, I'm God's spokesperson to tell Israel about their sin and transgression, we also know from what we read at the end of the, the book that Micah knows there's no one like God when it comes to forgiveness, when we turn back to Him. We can do the most terrible of things, but there's no one like God uh, when it comes to forgiveness. And today's passage begins uh, the third and final section of the book, Micah 6, 1-16. It takes this form of a lawsuit. And it's not, you shouldn't think necessarily about like, um, you know, watching Judge Judy or something, like lawsuits like that, but this is like, uh, a covenantal lawsuit. It, I mean, it might be closer uh, if we're thinking about like a, a divorce, uh, a court going to like a divorce case because um, not that God's like divorcing them, but it's like he's, they're in a covenant relationship. Like that, that's what marriage is. Marriage is a covenant. Like they said their vows. God brought them out of slavery in Egypt to Mount Sinai. And it's like, okay, Israel, like I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. Like that's, what it's going to look like. It's kind of like you, husband and wife, when, you know, like, you know, you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband, and that's what God's doing at Mount Sinai. It's like, we're going to be, you're going to, I want to be your God, you're going to be my people. And it's like, it's like this marriage ceremony at Mount Sinai, and he gives them the law. He says, this is what I've done to you, this is who I'm going to be, and this is who I want you to be to me. And so they're married. But now God's coming, he's saying, like, you guys have been unfaithful to this covenant. And so he's bringing this lawsuit against them. It's, and he's, uh, saying, this is what I have against my people. And in it we see that God's people have not lived up to expectations. In their relationship with God, God had expectations for them, and they weren't meeting those. And at the center of this lawsuit is Micah 6, 8, which is uh, probably the most famous uh, verse, or one of the most famous verses in Micah. And it's a clear statement about what God expects of us when we're in a relationship with Him. And so, as I was thinking about this, uh, I didn't really necessarily plan it this way. It's kind of how it just ended up. But how appropriate is it that we should start a year uh, with a sermon, start the year with a sermon about what does God want from us? Like, when we're in a relationship with God, what does He want from us? You know, that's what I'm titling this message, What God, what God Wants. And so, if we're in a relationship with God, what is He expecting from us? What is He, and the verse says, you know, God has told us what is good and what does He require of you and what does God want? What does God expect from us? What does He want from us? And what can we expect from God? As we start off our year, uh, this, we're seeing this passage where God is approaching His people who have turned away from Him and they've turned their attention to other things. They've grow, grown tired of following God and following His ways. And so maybe ask yourself, is that you? Do you, do you feel distracted? Have you felt it difficult to live for God in 2020 or in the last few weeks or last month? Have you felt unfocused? Did, did you let your attention drift to other things in 2020? And this passage shows us how God approaches that issue. If that's you, if it's like, man, I just, I just got tired and I let God go to the sideline and I put him on the back burner. If that's you, this shows us how God approaches us in that. God... And God approaches them to restore the relationship. And he does the same thing to us. And so, in verses 1 and 2, 
we see God coming to uh, approach them. Verse 1 says, Hear what the Lord says. This is Micah saying, speaking on behalf of God. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. And so Micah's coming, he's kind of like uh, the lawyer coming on behalf of the plaintiff. God's the plaintiff, and Micah's coming on behalf, and he's calling the mountains uh, to, to be the witnesses. And they're, I mean, what mountains can't talk, but it's kind of like the mountains, like, you guys have always been here, and so you've seen everything. This is often what happens in um, these lawsuits in the Old Testament and that in the ancient world at that time. They'll call like the, uh, the things of creation as witnesses because like, you've been here watching how Israel has acted. You've been there watching for hundreds of years. So mountains, I'm calling you as witnesses. You've seen how they've been treating me. Like, take a look at this. I'm calling you as witnesses. And he gives them two commands. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. And so he's saying, come, Judah, come plead your case. And they've been around silently as silent witnesses of all Israel's unfaithfulness. In verse 2, he's, he calls the mountains to hear the indictment of the Lord. He calls them to hear because he has an indictment against his people and he's going to contend with them. And so it's like, it's like this marriage on the rocks. He's like, okay, uh, just like the last straw. It's like this relationship is not where it should be. And I'm coming, I'm bringing other people into witnesses and I'm coming to confront you on it. And then in verses 3 through 5, it's like God begins his prosecution of them and also his defense of himself. And so it says in verse 3, Oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. And he begins, Micah begins the Lord's indictment, uh, speaking on God's behalf with, Oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? God doesn't begin with a list of accusations. He begins with two questions, asking, what, what have I done wrong? What have I done wrong? He doesn't say, this is what you've done wrong. He says, what have I done wrong? That you've like grown tired of me, that I've weary, wearied you. Why are you treating me this way? And when Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden, God came to them with a the question, where are you? He doesn't come with a list of accusations. Where are you? God says, what have I done? God invites them to self-reflect. Are, are you turning from me because of something I have done? Have I, what have I done to make you tired of me? What have I done to burden you? Why, why are you treating me this way? And he commands them, answer me. Give an answer to this. And with no answer given, God then recites his history with them. If they can't answer what he's done to them to make them turn away, he's going to answer, well, this is what I've done uh, in our history in this relationship. And so he says, uh, in verse 4. Uh, For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Miriam, all my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And so he goes back to the foundation, the founding as a nation. He goes back to the Exodus. That's what all this is referring to that they uh, they were in their slaves in Egypt for 400 years and what did God do? He came and he took them out of slavery in Egypt and it's not it's just like it's an ancient history to them because this is something they recited over and over it's like we were brought out of slavery in Egypt this is us we are the people of God who were brought out of slavery in Egypt he has saved us the reason we're in this land is because God saved us that's what they can look to I've redeemed you from the house of slavery 
I brought you out of there with these mighty works, and I gave you leaders, Moses and Aaron, Aaron and Miriam. Moses was who led them out, and then Aaron and Miriam were his brother and his sister. And these were these leaders I gave to you. I, I provided them for you. Then he addresses them in verse 5. Oh, my people. Remember what happened with Balak and Balaam. And so for a long while, he brought them out of Egypt, and then they came north, and uh, they, the land of Israel, on the east side of the land of Israel is the Jordan River. Actually, on this side for you guys. So here's Israel, Jordan River, and then here's Moab. And for a while, they camped on Moab on this side before they crossed the Jordan River into Israel. And while they were there, they had defeated these several kings, and this king, the king of Moab, Balak, He's scared of the people, and so he makes this alliance with these other people, and then they hire this guy named Balaam, and because he's like known as this guy who utters curses against people, I don't know, he's like this big, uh, you know, taunter guy, and they hire him, and at first he's like, no, I'm not going to go, uh, and then I'm, then he, and then he, eventually God says, no, I want you to go, but only say what I'm going to say. So he goes, and then he, instead of cursing the people of Israel, he speaks all these blessings upon them. And so God's reminding them, uh, this is just one instance of my faithfulness, that you guys, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, and all along the way, I was faithful to you and kept you safe. Look, these kings tried to come against you. They even tried to hire this guy to curse you. Look what happened. I defeated those kings. This guy couldn't talk about you in any way except to speak blessings of you. And, Sh- and Shittim was where they camped on the east side of the Jordan. That's where they were, got... Uh, Balak came and tried to do these curses upon him. And then Gilgal was on the other side, the west side of the Jordan River. And so they crossed over the Jordan River. But in order to cross, they've got all these people, they don't have boats or anything. God made the water of the Jordan stop so that they crossed on dry land. And so he's reminding them, look at all this stuff I did for you. I, all along the way, I brought you out of Egypt. And I brought you all the way to this land that you're sitting in right now. And this is the history we have. And so he's saying, you know, remember these events that I did on your behalf. And he's, uh, at the very end of that verse 5, he says, that you may, I did all this, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And God's righteous acts show him to be in the right in this court case. And the, that was one of the words used in, um, that they didn't use, usually use innocent. It was like, you are righteous. You're pronounced righteous uh, in this court case. So, they're going to walk out of this. It's like, who's going to be guilty? Who's going to be righteous? And so he's like, these are all my righteous acts on, if we're talking in this lawsuit, like, here's what I've done in this relationship. What have I done to weary you? Why are you, you know, treating me this way? Um, here's all my righteous acts that I've done. I've, I'm in the right in this relationship. He's done right by them in his covenant relationship with them. And they're in the wrong. He's not the guilty party here. And he wants them to go back to what he's done for them. And this is the basis of their relationship with them. These are the acts that are the foundation of his covenant with them. And he's, he has nothing but a history of grace and righteous acts with them. And what they do now is to flow out of what he's done. They're to live in light of his grace on their behalf. But they're living out of line with that. And so he takes them back. Like, what am I, this is what, where it all started. And so when we think about our relationship with God and how we live, and if we are feeling like, man, this is just, I'm just kind of tired of living, doing all this stuff that, all this, these religious things, these things for God. The foundation of our relationship with God is, is never what we've done. It's always based on what He has done. 
And that's the gospel. The good, the good news is uh, who God is and what he's done in Christ. That's the foundation of our, our relationship with him. And whatever we do is a response to that. It doesn't earn us a relationship with him. And so as they're thinking about what are we... What, he's like, why, why are you growing tired of me? Look at what I've done for you. He takes them back to the gospel. And that's the same for us. It's like, if we've grown weary of God, like, boom, there's like so much that I'm supposed to be doing for him. It's like, wait a second here. The reason we're in a relationship is because of all this I've done for you. I'm not, am I burdening you by wanting to be in this relationship with you? Uh, you know, this is what I've done to be in a relationship with you. And so that's what he's asking them. And then in 6, 6 through 8, we get to the core of it. The verses before 6, 8 lead up to it. The verses after it flow out of it. And so in 6 and 7, we hear what God doesn't want. It's what the people are offering. It's what he doesn't want in verses 6 and 7. Um, so Micah puts these questions in the people's mouth. This is like their, their response. And so the basic question is verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? And so they're, they're expressing a desire to make things right. What, what, what should we do? Okay, okay, fine. Uh, you're, you're upset. Uh, we've, obviously we need to do something here. What, what should we do to come before the Lord? But these questions that Micah puts in their mouth because he's like, okay, I know these people. I know what, how they're going to respond to this. And so let me just... I'm going to respond for you, and then I'm going to uh, kind of debunk what you're saying. These questions expose their faulty way of thinking about God and treating God. And so that basic question, okay, you're upset. How do I make this right? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? So the next question is this. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? And burnt offerings were very costly. Uh, because there are some sacrifices where you would bring it, it would get sacrificed, but the whole thing wouldn't get burnt up. You would get part of it back, some of the meat back. You would get to eat it, and the priests, their share, they, they didn't um, make a living out in the field, so part of their living was off of some of the sacrifices went to them, and some of the offerings went to them. Um, but the whole burnt offering was, the whole thing got burnt up, so it was very costly. And so they're saying, okay, should I come with you with whole burnt offerings? Like, oh, we'll do that. We'll do the most costly thing. And then a calves a year old, that's also costly because it's not just you've like spent time raising it, you've spent a whole year on it. Okay, now it's getting to the point where you can actually do something with this thing. Nope, okay, you spent a year, now you're just going like to get rid of it. So they're like, is this, should we come with these costly offerings? Will that make things right? The next question is, uh, will the Lord, in verse 7, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands river of oil? So they move to a large quantity of sacrifices now. Will that please you? Will that make you happy? And then they give, in the second half of verse 7, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And they offer the most costly sacrifice they can think of, the sacrifice of their own child, which was forbidden in Israel. God said, you are not supposed to do that. Uh, other nations are doing that, the god Moloch, uh, well, people, there'd be this big pot that they'd heat up and you throw your kid in there. This was what that God required. And God said, you're not supposed to do that. Uh, but there's evidence from Israel's history, archaeology has uncovered that this 
uh, the worship of the god Molech got came into the nation of Israel. That uh, they, some people were doing this at certain t- times in the nation of Israel. And so they're thinking, oh, do you want me to sacrifice my child? And they're just going to the biggest, the biggest thing they can think of. And the problem is that they're treating God like he can be bought. That, okay, you're unhappy. We get that. Like, we've messed up this relationship. What's it going to take to make you happy? What do you want from us? Like, what can we give? You, should we give you this costly offering? Do you want thousands of rands and you know, rivers of oil? Do you want my kid? Like, will that make you happy? What would make, what will make our relationship with you right again? What, what's going to please you and make you happy? And they look at their stuff and they pull out their wallets. Like, you know, if you have somebody, it's kind of when people are used to kind of getting what they want. Like, we remember earlier in the book, these are people who are uh, taking land from other people. They're bribing people in the court. Uh, and we're going to find out later in this chapter that they're messing around with the weights and measures to cheat people of their money. And so it's like, Okay, you're unhappy. Uh, what's, what, who should I make the checkout to? And it's kind of like one of those situations, almost like if you, or if you're at court or you, somebody's complaining or you have a, a police officer pull you over and it's like, okay, uh, you know, I'll slip you this or whatever. And it's like these people are used to getting their way. It's like, okay, God, what what, what are we gonna have to give you to kind of get you off our back here and make you happy again? And they think. He's like the corrupt justice, justice system where you can pay the judges off. How much is this going to cost to get me off the hook? But there's also this self-defensive tone here. These people have been doing the sacrifices. Like they're, they're keeping the sacrifices going. They, they've kept up the religious rituals. They think they're safe because they have the temple in Jerusalem. We saw that earlier in the book. They're like, oh. Mike is warning them, and they're like, oh, no. What's the, nothing's going to happen to Jerusalem. Like we've got the temple. God's here. Like everything's good. They're keeping up. You know, we're keeping God happy, keeping the sacrifices going. Like we're good. And there's almost this uh, tone of a child who, whose parent says to them, "You know, we need to talk about the ad, your attitude today, or that you're just talking with." And the child responds, "Well, what more do you want me to do? I do my homework. I do my chores. Do you want me to do my sister's chores too? Do you want me to mow the lawn three times a week? Like what's going to make you happy?" And it's, there's almost this tone with it. And the questions show this basic misunderstanding of God and their relationship with Him. There's like this transactional relationship, uh, like a transactional contract they have with Him, rather than a, a transformational, a covenant relationship with Him. And so God responds, what does God want? And Micah responds on God's behalf in verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse 8. He responds by telling them, there's nothing new to tell you. God has already told you what's good. He's already told you what he requires of you. If you guys are asking, what, what do you want from us? Here's, we'll do all these things. And it's like, he's already told you all this. And there's verses way back when he made this covenant with them, Deuteronomy and, and other of the early books that Moses wrote that almost are identical to what he says here. Like, he's already made it pretty clear what he wants from you. Micah responds to their questions with a question. He says, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And to do justice and to love kindness speaks to their horizontal relationships while to walk humbly with your God speaks to their vertical relationship. So you think about uh, his question is, what does the Lord require of you? And this word used in this context 
it means require, but in other contexts it means you know, it's somebody looking for something, you know, you're searching for something else, you're looking for something, and then the, the complementary word is you found it. You're looking for it, and then you found it. And so uh, here it's God looking for something. Uh, th- what is he looking for? What is he after in his people? What does he require of his people? What is he expecting for, from them? What does he want to find in them? God has not left us in the dark about what he expects of us. He's made it clear about what he wants. And so we don't, you know, we have, if you've if you been in a relationship or have a, you know, a, a friend or somebody, a, a, um, a significant other or a boss, and you don't know what they expect from you, but they're just constantly disappointed with you or they're constantly getting upset with you or mad at you, it's like super frustrating. It's like, I just don't know what they want from me. This is, I don't know what they expect from me. They have these expectations, but I don't know what they want. God has not done that with us. He's made it very clear. He's, made, he's told you what's good, what is good, and what it, this is what I want. This is what I expect. This is what, uh, I would, how I want you to live. And this is how it, what a relationship with me looks like. God's made it very clear. And so it's not true that our relationship with God has to be frustrating. And so we can think of these as like marriage vows. And God wrote Israel's marriage vows for them. Back in Exodus 19, you can look at it that God makes a mini, a mini version of this where he says, look here, I'm your God, I brought you out of Egypt. And then he says, if you obey me, obey my commands and be faithful to me, you'll be my treasure possession, a kingdom of priests among all the nations. And then he has the Ten Commandments. And you think of the Ten Commandments, it's like the first half are about how they're supposed to relate to God, and the second half are about how they relate to other people. And it's like, okay, there we go. It's all about these relationships of how you're supposed to treat him and treat other people. It's like, there's your marriage vows and all the other laws, there's 613 of them, are all detailing out in daily life, well, what does this actually look like to love God and love other people? And so God wrote his mar- the marriage vows for him and for Israel. And he's like, I've told you what's good, what I require of you. And so the first one is to do justice. If you want to, if you ever have anybody, well, I guess it's a nerdy Hebrew word, but it's a, one that's used over and over again, so it's maybe worthwhile to know, but maybe not. It's a mishpat. A, so if you ever want to say that and say, hey, I know a Hebrew word, mishpat. Uh, but to do justice or to do mishpat. It covers both how individuals and groups act. Uh, God cares about uh, fairness. He cares about equity. He cares about honesty. Uh, and governments and courts and businesses and individuals should be acting in moral and ethical ways that reflect this. Uh, and there's, there's also care for the poor and vulnerable and needy. And so it's like individuals and groups and businesses and, and the whole society should be acting in a way that reflects God's uh, fairness and equity and honesty. And at the same time, those people who have power and influence or wealth should be taking care of and looking after those who are needy and vulnerable. And so justice has these, it's also rooted in the fact that every human being is created in the image of God. It's like, okay, why should, why should I care about someone who's vulnerable and needy? It's like, well, they got themselves into that situation, and you know, there's their poor choices. It's like, well, why? You should care about them because, well, they're made in the image of God. It doesn't matter what poor choices they made. Uh, they're made in the image of God, so they have the same dignity. And as a human being, they have the same rights as all of us. Is that they should be taken care of like a human being, not like you don't deserve care because. You made bad choices. So vulnerable people 
needy people or just people who didn't make bad choices, who are just in, are in a situation where it's like, well, my husband died, and now I lost my house, and I lost my way of income, because so, I will. And we'll get into a little more of those you know, situations in a little bit. But justice can have these two different uh, ways it gets worked out in the Bible. One is retributive, one is restorative. And retributive justice is probably what we think of the most, where it's like, okay, people do bad things and need to be punished. That's retributive justice. Like, there, there's a crime, and now there needs to be a punishment. So that's one. one. Wrong is being punished. And so that's one form of justice. But justice can also be restorative, where what is wrong is being restored. It's not just retributive, it's where what is wrong is being punished. Restorative is where what is wrong is being restored. And many times when the Old Testament talks about justice, it's talking about the second version, restorative justice. And a just community, if a, a community is going to be a, doing justice, it's is when... Uh, the problems of the vulnerable become the problems of those who have power and influence and resources. The powerful and influential make the problems of the vulnerable their problems. And the vulnerable in Israel's day, uh, some people call it the quartet of the vulnerable, because there's four of them that get mentioned over and over again. It was the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the immigrant. The poor, the orphan, the widow, and the immigrant. They get mentioned over and over again. Of these four pe- groups of people are especially vulnerable uh, in Israel's day. Uh, the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the immigrant. And then when you get to the New Testament, uh, those people, you see Jesus hanging around with all kinds of people. Poor people, and then people with leprosy, that's people that get pushed out to the side. Uh, but then in, uh, he's hanging out in tax collectors. It's like people that... Uh, are vulnerable to being becoming outcasts and, and ignored uh, and not getting kind of the same rights as everybody else and uh, of, of like their rights getting violated of like they're not treated as people made in the image of God and so restorative justice is like there's something wrong here like uh, you know this person's an orphan and so it's like well you know they can't really contribute anything or this person's a widow and it's like well they're just kind of like a drag on society or like oh poor people like oh they just kind of like you know, they make things dirty, and like immigrants, well, they don't really belong here anyway. These are like all people that are easily like pushed to the side or neglected or ignored um, in Israel's day. And then in the New Testament, you see often in the letters who gets uh, addressed and are being talked about as that need to be taken care of are uh, women and children and slaves. Because eventually, uh, when um, later writers start writing, they start, those people that get talked about as like, well, you know, men are really people who are like, uh, who are who really matter, and these other people, they're, yeah, they're just kind of like. And so those, when you see Paul writing in letters, it's like women, children, and slaves are getting talked to as like, well, you guys are part of this community, and you're treated as equals in the family of God. And so those are people that are vulnerable uh, in New Testament times, and these other groups were as well. But these are people easily taken advantage of and pushed to the side and neglected. And so I have three phrases for you if you want to think about what it means to do justice. Uh, For people to do justice would mean uh, they stand up for what God is for. So they stand up for what God is for. They stand against what God is against. No, I'm sorry. Stand 
No, the first one is stand for what God is for. They stand against what God is against. They stand for what God is for. Stand against what God is against. Stand for what God is for. Stand against what God is against. And speak up for the vulnerable. To stand for what God is for. Stand against what God is against. And speak up for the vulnerable. That's what it looks like to do justice. Stand for what God is for. Stand against what God is against. And speak up for the vulnerable. Because we might think of justice as, okay, if I'm going to be involved and like make this world a better place, like, okay, I'm going to like uh, protest. That's often how we think of it. Okay, I'm going to vote. I'm going to protest. I'm going to post things on social media or something like that. But as we're going to see later in this chapter, it's very much how we live in our daily life. It may, maybe it would, it would include some of those things, but it's also how do I go about uh, my daily life? And how do we live as a community? And what do we do with people in our community? It's like James, we saw earlier in the summer, how does he address this? He says, when, when somebody comes in in shabby clothing that's like poor, how do we treat them? Or how do we treat um, elderly or, or sickly? And it's like, are there people that are like, oh, they're just less useful to us. So they're like, yes, less beneficial. And so it's like, ah, we just treat them as lesser. So secondly, he says, so it's to do justice and they're to love kindness. And this adds another layer and shows us the type of justice that God wants us to do. It's showing us, he's aiming at this restorative justice. It's like retributive justice, us punishing people for the wrong, but that's not really where he's focusing for. Often in the Bible we're told we should leave vengeance, leave retributive justice in God's hands, um, and the government is put in place also to, by God to execute that. Um, but kindness translates the word, I feel like we've talked about this the last three weeks, but translates the Hebrew word chesed, which is God's compassionate, loyal love for a covenant partner in dire need. And so to love kindness adds emphasis to the imperative that already exists in doing justice, uh, you know, to speak up and take care of the poor, the vulnerable, and needy. So it's like, he wants them to love kindness. So it's like, okay, you want me to love kindness. You want me to love being a compassionate, loyal, loving person to people I'm committed to who are in dire need. So it's like, well, who are they committed to? And who's in dire need around them? It's like, well, they are in covenant relationship with God. And if you go back to the Ten Commandments, it's like, okay, the first half were about how they're supposed to treat being in relationship with God. But the second half were about how they're supposed to be in relationship with other people. They're in this covenant with God, but that also puts them in covenant relationship with all these other people. So like, okay, I have a commitment and responsibility to them, and I'm supposed to love showing, doing hesed, being hesed with them, of having this uh, compassionate, loyal love. I'm supposed to have compassion towards these other people around me. I'm supposed to have this loyalty to them, this commitment to them, this responsibility I'm supposed to show it to them. It's not just like, okay, do justice, like, ah, here's these things I have to do. It's like, no, you're supposed to have this emotional part to this of like, you're supposed to want to do this. When you see somebody who's struggling, you're supposed to have this compassion flowing out from you. And so he's saying, uh, you're, there's a commitment part to your justice and there's an a emotional part to it as well. We have a covenant commitment to help each other. So it's like the needy person that they ignore on the street, 
isn't a nobody that they have no responsibility to. It's like, no, you have a commitment to them. And when you ignore uh, the poor, the orphan, the widow, uh, and the immigrant, or anybody else who's vulnerable and just gets pushed aside in society, it's like, you have a commitment to them, they're saying. And second, helping one another should not be a cold, calculating act. It should be a compassionate, tender act of love. And then he says, you're supposed to walk humbly with your God which creates the foundation for the other two. How they treat people flows out of their relationship with God. It means to take special care and to pay special attention to God, doing God's will. His gracious and righteous acts are in the rear view mirror. Like, this is what God's done for us, and then His will is like what's guiding how they steer the wheel going forward. And so if we think just about these things to do justice and to love kindness or some translations say to love mercy and often Hesed gets whenever you see the if you're using the ESV translation um, it usually translates it as steadfast love whenever you see that that's probably the word Hesed and so you can see how many times it shows up in the Bible but this is a powerful word um, in the Bible so we're supposed to do justice to love kindness uh, but this is how God has said He's already treated them in verses 3 through 5. Like, what did he do? What, what God requires of us, what God requires of them, what he requires is what he does. It's what he's already done on our behalf and on their behalf. His commands for us are an expression of his character that he already shows towards us. And what God wants um, us to do is what he's already done to us and what he's already done for us. His, his expectations that he calls us to is something he's already shown us. It's like uh, God kind of already meets his own standard uh, that he's calling us to, to uh, show to one another. And there's uh, Psalms that express this well. So Psalm 146, 7 through 9, says this. It gets into what uh, how God acts. Psalm 146, 7 through 9, this is God speaking, uh, or this final God. So it says, uh, God who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. So you see both the restorative He's restoring these people, the restorative justice of lifting up these people who are uh, in rough places, but also the way the wicked brings to ruin. So there's the retributive justice of he's punishing uh, what is wrong. And the, the ultimate example of what justice looked like for these people was in the Exodus. It's like, okay, they were in this situation of dire need where they're in slavery in Egypt, and then uh, what does God do? He comes and the Egyptians are oppressing them and putting them in slavery and he executes retributive justice on them. He punishes the Egyptians but he also executes restorative justice upon the Israelites. He lifts them up out of that situation. He, he uses his power, his influence, his might to, to bring them out of it. It's not because they've done anything. He just does it out of his compassion and his loyal love, the commitment he's already made to their forefathers, and he brings them up out of that. And so he's reminding them, remember how I've already done this to you. I've already shown you justice. I've already shown you 
uh, kindness. Remember how I was committed to you and out of my compassion and love I brought you out of this. Then if we think about Jesus and how he treated people, he's doing the same thing. He's calling people to account that are in the wrong and he's restoring people that are needing to be restored. And Jesus also paid for what we owe. The wrong that we owe, he paid for it. The retributive justice of God, Jesus paid for it. That we all stand under God's justice and the wrong that we have done. But he also defeats the power of evil that hold us in slavery. And sin, Satan, and death. But he's also restorative, that we are in this place of dire need. And that He, we are made in the image of God. And he comes in his compassion his mercy, and he lifts us up out of that. He lifts up the needy, the vulnerable, the oppressed, the suffering. And so it's all the exodus again that Jesus comes in and he takes upon himself the punishment we deserve and he lifts us up and all we need when we humble ourselves, he's lifting us out of that. So this is the foundation of our relationship. But sadly, we see in the final verses which we'll review quickly that uh, Israel does not live this out. They are, God says, speaks to the city of Jerusalem. He's like, this, things are not going well. My rod of discipline is coming against you. And people in those days would use weights. The farmers would bring their grain, and that's how it would get measured out on these weights. But they were dependent on the buyers uh, to have on the other side of the scale the right a weight to measure out the grain or whatever they were selling. And so uh, they could, the buyers could uh, rip them off by having a weight that was maybe uh, too too light. So it's like, oh, I'm getting, they put their grain on there and it's like, oh, the, the buyer might say, this weighs 10 pounds, but actually the rock they have or whatever weighing it out is only 9 pounds, uh, or, or it's 11 pounds. And so they're getting 11 pounds of grain but they're saying, you gave me 10 pounds of grain, so they're paying them out for 10 pounds. Does that make sense? But they're, the buyers are cheating them by having weights that are, uh, are deceitful, he says. And so God's saying, like, you guys are storing up all these riches and all this money, and you're committing violence against one another. And he says, I'm going to deliver punishment for these crimes. And in verses 14 through 15, these are like, uh, they're called futility curses. It's like, you're going to be doing all this stuff, planting and vineyards and try to do this thing, and it's just, nothing's going to get you ahead. It's just going to get you nowhere. It's like you're going to be spinning your wheels, and that's, it's like this emptiness. Like when we're trying to live against the way God has made things to work, it's like we spin our wheels and it leads to emptiness. And finally, verse 16 is a summary statement of the crimes and punishment, and it brings us back to two kings in Israel's past who lived over a century before Micah, and Micah is referring to them as like, these are two kings that were in the northern kingdom and you get, it's like you guys are taking counsel from them and how to run things and this is what where things are going to go if you keep going this way. And so if we think about our lives and how we're living God expresses his disappointment in how they're relating to him. They push God to the side and in their lives. They're not careful about walking with him in their daily life. Their relationship with him has been reduced to these religious rituals to make him happy. And so there's kind of two summary statements for what we can learn from this passage and apply is that 
One, we learn God doesn't want to be a religious burden or obligation. God doesn't want to be a religious burden or obligation. God doesn't want to be a religious burden or obligation. He doesn't want to just be something that we're checking off the list or making him happy or like, what is it that you want? Okay, do you want more sacrifices? Do you, just, you want, or, and we're just going through life thinking, okay, like, I need to be coming to, you know, worship services on Sunday, I need to be reading my Bible, I need to be praying, and, uh, you know, I need to be doing this, this, and that. And it's like we have this checklist of things, and then we just feel like, I'm just exhausted from doing all this God stuff. And I just need to break from it. Like, that's the last thing God wants. So that does not make him, that's not the kind of relationship with him that makes him happy. And he just says, like, no, that's not what I want from you. He doesn't want to be a religious burden or obligation. But what he does want, God wants a real relationship where we reflect what he's like. God wants a real relationship where we reflect what he's like. God wants a real relationship where we reflect what he's like. He doesn't want to be in a transactional contract with us. How much do you want from me? He wants to be the center. It's like we, if everything is like a, a wheel. God doesn't want to just be a spoke on the wheel and in the center. He's like, here's what I'm trying to get done in my life. Here's what I want it to be. Like, this is my little kingdom I'm making. God's like a spoke or a plate or a ball. I'm trying to juggle and I just got to keep it going. God wants to be the center around everything else spins around that. He doesn't want to just be another spoke on the wheel. He wants to, wants to let it into our heart and our lives. And these people were keeping them out of their heart and out of their life. And it showed, the end of the chapter showed us he had nothing to do with their daily life. They're giving, want to give all these sacrifices, but he's like, look how you're living and how you're treating people. Like, this is why I'm coming and talking to you. Like, I want to give all these sacrifices uh, on whatever scheduled time you give them. Or Sunday morning is not when they went, but you come on Sunday morning or you spend your 20 minutes in the Bible or you pray to me before you eat and before you go to bed, but I don't care. Like, look how you're treating people, how you're running your business, how you're working with people, how you're... You're doing all this stuff. Like you're not doing justice. You're not loving kindness. You're not walking with me and trying to do my will in your life. He wants a real transformational relationship. And so, it's just something for us to think about. If if someone had no idea what you believe, and all they had to go on was how you do your work, uh, how you use your resources, how you treat other people. What would they learn about you and what you believe from that? If someone had no idea what you believe and all they had to go on was how you do your work, how you use your resources, and how you treat other people. What would they learn about you and what you believe from that? What would they conclude about what, what your God is like? What kind of God do your work habits show you believe in? What kind of God do your spending habits show you believe in? kind of God does your life show you believe in? And what story about God is your life telling? And we can think like, oh man, my spending habits show that I really believe God's kind of stingy or that I believe my stuff and more stuff for me is what's best. Or the way I use my time shows that uh, I think it's all for me or that 
No, I just think it's more relaxation time for me is what's best. But, you know, what, whatever it is, we're like, man, I, I maybe like treat people nice, that my church people nice because I like those people. But at work, I'm just a totally different person. And it's like, what you know, what are those? What does all of our life say about what we believe about God? That's what God's saying. Is, but, but God, how He comes to us? Where does He take us? If we're wearied of Him. And if we found that we're just trying to please him with religious rituals, like, man, I'm just so tired of trying to live for him and do what he wants. And if we found that our relationship with him has been reduced down to like these little rituals we're trying to fit in, um, we're finding we're not treating others how we should, where does God bring them back to? He's like, he brings them back to the gospel. Like, remember what I've done for you? Why do we grow tired of God? It's because we've forgotten where we were and what he's done for us. But they've forgotten. you remember where you would be without me? You'd be in slavery in Egypt, suffering under oppression. And we would be in the same place. We'd be suffering under sin and Satan and death. But look what Jesus done. He came into that and took us out. And so he takes them back to the gospel to get them to turn, turn back. And so let's pray that we would be a people who walk carefully with God and we embody his justice and kindness that he's shown to us and that we show to one another those around us. Father, would you help us be a people that stand for what you're for, stand against what you're against, and speak up for those who are vulnerable around us. Would you let us not stand idly by when we see people who are hurting and in need. Help us to be your hands and feet that show others what you've done for us. So thank you, Craig. Amen.